Isaiah chapter 5 this evening. It takes hard work to properly mature in Christianity, in Christ. And, of course, going through the Old Testament is hard work. New Testament is too. Meals for Hell, that's the title of this evening's verse-by-verse consideration. I've always been fond of this chapter, this fifth chapter. And um, I like how Isaiah sees through the dishonesty, the spiritual dishonesty of the people, and how he, he makes his points. And he tells these types of people that hell is going to make a meal out of them. Uh, you would like to think that that would be alarming to those who hear such a message from such a man as Isaiah. So he's straightforward with these things. He starts out with a poetic song, which is really a parable. And, of course, in this poetic song, just about six verses, and then an explanation in verse 7, he calls them out and says that uh, they won't get away with evil forever. And accountability is the very thing the world resents about Christianity. There are other things too, but it all comes down to they are accountable to God. And the Bible is, of course, very clear about this. But it is also as clear about the grace of God that is available. So we look now at verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved. Regarding his vineyard, my well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So he wastes no time in catching his audience attention. uh, And he's promising, he's telling them, here's a song. But it is a parable with serious rebukes in this parable. And what I also like is three times he mentions my beloved. And it's it's almost like a Christian saying, I love the Lord to an unbeliever. I I love the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not. I love him. And it's this, this emphatic presentation of the prophet's love for Yahweh right out the starting gate. Let me sing to my well-beloved. Uh, and uh, it's just very attractive to, to me, and I think to all believers. And the well-beloved uh, to I here in Isaiah, of course, is Yahweh. That's who he's addressing uh, this song to. Yahweh is the owner of the vineyard, and he is the owner of Israel. He is the owner of all things. Uh, this is his, another way of saying he is sovereign over everything. The song of my beloved. And uh, what the apostates feel about Yahweh, Isaiah does not. And, and, and he's just, you know, not being rude, telling it like, we're well, not being rude yet. We're not going to be rude at all. To tell the truth when it needs to be told is it's not being rude. Although there are times when kindness has to come before truth in in the presentation, in the heart of the the one that's making the presentation. Otherwise, just raw truth can be brutal. Uh, So we, we have to work at that. Anyway, a song of my beloved and whatever the world thinks about Christ, he is our beloved. And what the prophet is saying here is what was already put in print by Solomon in the Song of Songs, chapter 2. My beloved is mine and I am his. It is a declaration 
of unabashed faith. And we all have felt the pressure from the world to be a little skittish about our confession of faith. And when that happens, just understand it's natural, and that's the problem. It's not spiritual. It's a natural sensation, and it has to be met head on uh, in our hearts. Um, Years ago, we used to, working on a a skyscraper in New York, and we'd come down for lunch, and after lunch, or after, I think right after lunch, we'd have a Bible study right there on on the sidewalk, pretty much, and uh, I was fine with that. I didn't care what everybody felt, but I was uncomfortable with the prayer time, and the reason why is because I knew unbelievers were looking at us, not understanding what they were looking at. And to leave it just there, to me, uh, made it feel like we weren't doing justice. We were sort of uh, indirectly casting pearl before swine. Because the carnal man, the natural man, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And, uh, but that wasn't because I was embarrassed about my faith. I just didn't care for that presentation of my faith. And so, uh, and my good friend, my dear friend, he didn't share that opinion. Uh, he's been wrong many times since, but, you know, we still love him. Uh, so just, uh, uh, you could do it that whatever you want, but hopefully it helps when we want to say to the world, my beloved is mine and I am his, and I want him to be your beloved too. And if you reject that, I'm not going to stop loving him. And so this, uh, this poem calls itself a love poem, right, right at, at the beginning. And uh, he uses the, the metaphor of the vineyard to describe God's care for, for Israel. And the metaphor sticks with us. Word pictures or, or just all around a, a metaphor. And he will explicitly make that statement when he gets to verse 7. Um, uh, and even the Lord drew from this image in, in Matthew 21. Anyway, he continues, My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Now, this is critical to the song, because he's saying the problem is not with the soil. This is a fruitful hill. It has a, 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 a history of producing fruit. So if no fruit comes, whose fault is it? And that's where he, he so he's setting that up. Now, we, we have the whole song already read and known, but his audience, just hearing this is a fruitful hill, they're playing along. This vineyard has the potential to bear fruit. And fruit in the sense of being faithful to God and the blessings that come from it. That's, that's what the fruit is. It's a blessing. It produces life. And so the prophet is saying early on, there's not going to be an excuse for, for lack of growth with Yahweh, with God, or Jehovah, the old uh, version of the theologian's uh, translation translation or understanding of the covenant name. Romans chapter 1, Paul pretty much says this thing, same thing. He says, for since creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And that's part of our Christian message, that you don't have an excuse to say, you do not believe in God And then, going from there, which God do you believe in and why? And most of the the religions of the world simply either lie, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, 
or the Mormons. I mean, the guy had little glasses. He could see spiritual things. Come on. I'm not, you know. It's easier to trust the word of God with all of its prophecies than to, to sell me these, these things that are just um, too sensational and have no, no basis for me to trust them. Whereas the scripture has a basis. The prophecies are astounding. And again, in our lifetime, one of the greatest testaments to the veracity and trustworthiness of Scripture is the nation Israel. I mean, it's just so laid out for us. It's, it, Israel has become a parable. Well, verse 2, the, the prophet continues with his song, though we have not the notes. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. There's so much here, uh, in, in metaphorically speaking, that connects, which makes the metaphor a metaphor, which connects with the history of the Jews. It says, <clears throat> he dug it up. Hard work. God is saying he's invested in Israel. Israel is the vineyard. And uh, he dug out the stones, making a fence around the vineyard. With, that's what they would have done if the stones were large enough. And the law of the Jews, the rabbis, came to call it the fence of the law. And they got this from Deuteronomy 28, which I was supposed to have open up here, and I must have got distracted and closed it. So, you know, you go through 30 verses of the Old Testament, you just don't have time to be thumbing through verses. Verse, uh, I, I need to read it. For impact, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt or bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. And so, in the flat roof tops of the, of the ancient peoples in that part of the world, you had to put a fence around it so nobody would accidentally fall off. That, that negligence would not be accepted. Well, the law served that purpose morally and spiritually in its relationship to God. You wouldn't fall off by believing some fake God. Just read Deuteronomy 13. It puts the kibosh on any of that. Uh, but, but it also, for, for moral purposes, uh, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. It, it, it baked into the law. So, here he says he dug it up and cleared out its stones, and he would put a fence, and he did put a fence around Israel, which is the law. Yahweh gave Israel their law, and no other nation can make that claim, uh, not as uh, codified as, as the uh, Old Testament is. He says, and at this time when Isaiah is written, as much of the Old Testament as we know it has not yet been uh, Published. Nehemiah is not even born yet, for example. Anyway, it cleared out its stones. They're metaphorically removing the Canaanites, the obstacles to bearing fruit in this vineyard, this land of the Lord. This is allegory, but it is solid allegory. You can go off the deep end with allegory, but uh, here it is just right there on the surface. Uh, here the Lord is making the land ready for sowing and harvesting. And the prophet is saying, God invested in you put all this into you, did all this work, got the Canaanites, gave you the law, and of course the punchline will come. And look what you did with it. You have no excuse. The soil was just right. He says, planted it with the choicest vine. Well, he had Joshua and Caleb and that generation, when they entered into that promised land, they had everything they needed in the form of people 
to be God's people. He, and, and in Judges, it makes it clear that once that generation died off, things fell apart very quickly. He says he built a tower in, the midst, in its midst and also made a wine press in it. And you just say to yourself, did the people listening to this song catch all these metaphors? If they meditated, meditated on it, I, I think they would. But they, most of them, many of them, would not. But they would discuss it if they, if they were interested. And the, just like we do today, just as we extract exposition from the scriptures, what Jesus did, and he expounded on, uh, on them, on the, that road to Emmaus, he, he drew uh, from the scriptures and made its points, his points. Anyway, coming back to this about the tower, well, the central, the tower would be outstanding, of course. It would be the structure that would, you, you couldn't miss it, but that's Jerusalem where he placed his name. And from that tower, his priests and his prophets together could watch against spiritual foes. And Israel had all of this. God gave them all of this. So he said, so he expected to bring forth good grapes, obviously. God put all this work into Israel. He expected fruit. Don't, how about a church? You take a church and you invest in a solid Bible teaching and you expect fruit. The church at Ephesus was that kind of church. When we get, as we go through Acts, we'll find out how many solid Bible teachers Ephesus enjoyed. And yet, what happened? The Lord gets to them and says, Look, I know you're doing a lot of good things for people, but you left your first love, and this is a big deal. That's what he says. He tells them, he warns them, I'll, I'll take your light from you. This is so, so critical. So God expects fruit. He expects it from the Christian life. This is an attribute of God. Uh, we're not um, foggy on this. And fruit can be in many ways. Uh, yeah, there are some that can lead people to Christ. There are others that can just simply serve. There are others that can pray. I mean, has, I mean who takes the, the washcloths from the cafe here and takes them home and washes them and brings them back? Uh, how much work goes into preparing the communion articles on a Sunday morning? There are a lot of ways to bear fruit for Christ, and uh, so we are without excuse if we say, I, this was nothing I can do. Uh, that that's not, may not be uh, the whole story. Anyway, if you are reading the book of Exodus for the first time, knew not the story, and you read about the Jews coming out of Egypt and how God miraculously brought them out, wouldn't you expect that there would be some incredible, wonderful things that would happen spiritually after that? Well, we all do. That's why we're so surprised and disappointed when it does not happen. And God is too. And it says, but it brought forth wild grapes. There's a malfunction. It's because of the apostasy. The audience of Isaiah. It had gotten so bad. He's writing this poetic, parabolic uh, song to try to reach them from this angle. Wild grapes. The Hebrew tells us it's foul-smelling grapes. Grapes of stench. The opposite of a blessing. Something that is odious. The difference between the wild grape and the domestic grape basically is care. And God gave it care. What more could God do when his total work of grace had been poured out upon them, yet they remained as if grace never touched them. They lived 
as though they were untouched by grace. That goes all the way back to God saying to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all the peoples of the world. And it was supposed to be catapulted into existence through the nation Israel. Anyway, uh, this is how it will be when Christ comes. He will face the same rejection. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. And so here's another plea to reason, as we got in chapter 1, come let us reason. And it's passionate here. He says, oh, inhabitants. That's a passionate insertion. He says, judge, please, come look into this. Don't dismiss it. Apply yourself. That's what we try to get unbelievers to do. Have you ever read the Bible? I've read it. Some of them will say they have. Some of them have. Just because you read it doesn't mean you're going to be a believer. Um, there's, there's more to everything than just one thing uh, as, as here on earth, under the sun. Anyway, he's saying this to lost souls. He's not speaking to the righteous Jews. They are, they are believers. He's speaking to the apostate Jews. And then, therefore, they are lost. And he's saying to them, come on, let's just, just work this through. You've got to make a choice. Not the first time they would have heard this. Their version of Sunday school classes. When they went to yeshiva, to the Jewish schools, to learn how to read and write, the law of the Lord would be what they would learn from. That was their textbook. They would have heard this from Joshua 24. And Joshua says, if it seems evil to you to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And he goes, my, as for me and my house, we've made our choice. Well, that's what they're getting here. A refresher course, verse 4. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? And why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Why the malfunction? I did everything right. Of course, this is anthro- anthropomorphism. God sort of uh, behaving as though he's just a, a, a mere man to, for the sake of reasoning. He's coming off as, as though he's identifying with us. Because we understand this. And God is not really asking the question. He doesn't ask questions that he doesn't know the answer to already. When he asks a question, it's so that he can extract a confession or denial, whatever the case may be. He did everything for, he did everything right for people who insisted on doing everything wrong. None of this is hard to believe because we live it too. And Jesus with his life, that, that virtuous life, the death, the resurrection, Everything was done right. You couldn't say, well, you know, Jesus, if you just had done this, those Pharisees would have believed you. No, there was nothing more he could do. And so Isaiah calls it out 700 years before Christ comes. He is despised and rejected by men. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. All the Pharisees knew that verse. The Sadducees and the Herodians, all of them knew this. The parable, it brings home, as nothing else could, the sheer unreason and indefensibility of sin. It just brings it right to the front. You're not being honest. This is original sin, which produces then subsequent sins. We are born sinners. And so Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. 
and desperately wicked. It is, but it has such potential. It just needs to be touched by grace. And all the prophets were. Abraham was. Enoch was. Seth was. There's a history. There's no excuse. Nobody's going to be in hell blaming God. Well, I didn't have a chance. God will, he will filter that out. And the ones that we might look at and say, well, God didn't give that poor person a chance. Well, that's not the whole story. You, God's got moves you know nothing about. Otherwise, he can't be God. Anyway, why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? God is asking, what just happened here? Can anyone explain to me this unnatural failure? Verse 5, and now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled upon. All that work that he put into it, he's going to let it all go to go the way. It's already a waste because of the people. The people give that definition to the things that God has done in that sense. Now, the New King James uses the word now. Please let me tell you. Uh, the Hebrew does really, uses really a, a connection of beseech. And that's why the translators would have taken that step. It's, I don't think it's wrong. And I only point it out because maybe you're using a different translation. I'm using the New King James, uh, which I've had for years, so it really isn't that new. All right, that's the break. Anyway, I, I think it is consistent with... The emotional plea back in verse 3 when he appeals to them emotionally. Oh, inhabitants, you know, he's trying to just reach them. And so, you know, we lose some of this feel in the Hebrew, but it's made up for uh, through the Spirit and so many other things that we're sensitive to. Uh, And the proof of that is you have people who read this in the Hebrew and they don't know God. And you have people who don't know the Hebrew and they come to verses and like this and they just totally into it. Yes, Lord. Anyway, the vineyard's owner responds uh, to this situation. He says, I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall. So protection withdrawn. Animals will then freely enter and destroy, you know, little foxes that spoil the vine from Song of Solomon. Babylon's armies would breach the walls of Jerusalem. We read that in 2 Kings chapter 25, where in verses 4 and 10, it's explicitly stated. And and that here it is prophetically said by Isaiah 100 years before it happened. And it shall be trampled down, which is exactly what happened to Jerusalem. Uh, The Gentiles would be the instrument of judgment because God couldn't find enough Jews to be the instrument of judgment on his own people. There were righteous Jews, no question, but not enough of them. And when there were enough of them, well, then they would rally, and they would, we read about this in the book of Judges, when they rallied against the immorality in the land. Uh, they had these flashes of righteousness, uh, but uh, by this stage, it's all gone. And I think when the church reaches the point where she is so ineffective because of the gross global apostasy of Christendom, uh, then comes the rapture. Because the church is now marginalized to the point where there's no need for it here. And then you'll have the tribulation conversions, but there'll be no true church, just the apostate church. And uh, the coming of the great apostate church under Antichrist, well, Antichrist will have his fingers in it, but he will hate it too. Revelation chapter 17, verse 16, 
and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, that's Antichrist, these will hate the harlot, the unfaithful one. Make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And if you were napping, you're not now, because when we read these kind of things, I'm like, uh, man, that's pretty heavy-duty stuff. It's um, so insensitive of God to speak like that. He doesn't care that he's offending me. Uh, he'd rather offend you with truth than judge you with eternal damnation. So be grateful. Uh, anyway, Antichrist will cause dissension within Roman Catholicism is my take on it. They are the, and the apostate church will be under their umbrella. No, one, no other entity in Christendom has the wealth that is described. This woman that rides the beast who is the harlot, who is bedecked with jewels, no other. Uh, the Mormons don't cl- come close to what is owned there in the Vatican. Anyway, uh, you may say, I, I don't like that. Well, you can have your opinion. Uh, and I don't mean, I sound snarky when I say that, and I don't mean to, but it has some, sometimes, you, you know, you just can't walk around uh, just apologizing for everything. Let me take the next 20 minutes to apologize for what I believe. <laughs> Not going to happen. Verse 6, I will lay it waste. It shall be pruned or dug. It shall not be pruned or dug. That's why I got the pause. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. And so now it's getting divine because in the metaphor, the vineyard owner has no power over the elements. And here it is, you know, God is part of this. Briars and thorns, very emblems of stunted growth due to sin. The twisted thorns on the head of Christ as his crown, the emblem of sin. Uh, every thorn, we're told by botanists, that uh, uh, this should have been a flower. Something went wrong. And uh, you can probably fact check me on that. Uh, but okay. I, I mean, I don't discourage that. Just don't get carried away and be chasing me down the road. Hey, you were wrong with that. <laughs> All right. Anyway, back to this. Verse 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And so here's the verse where he explains the song, which allows us to have the allegory, the metaphor, which takes, okay, this justifies what, how we've been uh, approaching this. The outcry of injustice is is the problem. And when there's injustice towards God, there's going to be injustice towards men. That is a law of this life under the curse. Wherever God is disrespected, injustice against people occurs. Uh, The prophet will... um, He will continue to develop this. In fact, he's, he's going to ramp it up. He's going to be done with the metaphor, and he's going to take the direct approach right out to them. I should also point out, when he says uh, the vineyard of Yahweh, the house of Israel, well, elsewhere, Isaiah sometimes uses Israel for a synonym of Judah. And this is, a new Bible student might get kind of mixed up here, but I mentioned digging into the word. Well, of course, we knew the northern kingdom is Israel and the southern kingdom is Judah. But sometimes they merge because they truly are both 
Israel. And the distinction arises because of the split of the kingdom. Uh, we don't know exactly what point Isaiah is writing this because uh, he lived before the northern kingdom was taken away by Assyria and he was alive and prophesying after that event. But we know that he, inter- he uses, when he speaks to, to Judah, he also refers to Judah as Israel. So uh, that's, that's no violation. Nehemiah does the same thing in chapter 1 and chapter 13 and there was no longer a northern kingdom uh, the southern kingdom was just getting her, her sea legs back when Nehemiah comes along. Uh, also, in Judah, there were many refugees from the northern kingdom from the very beginning. From when, the minute Jeroboam went goofy, uh, and you know, he was the first king of the northern kingdom, and started with the, the, the altar in Bethel and, and, the, and, and the different places he started his idolatry, uh, many of the northern kingdom Jews from various tribes began to come into Judah to get away from him. So there were always uh, members of the 12 tribes in Judah uh, the, the whole time. Anyway, uh, they, they carried on, many of these apostates, as though they were righteous, but they were not. Other practices outed them. Matthew 23, Jesus does this with the Pharisees. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You may say, well, wait a minute. Sometimes I feel like I'm putting on my best for people too, and I don't mean to be an apostate. I love the Lord. Well, the difference is the Pharisees weren't even fighting and checking it in their hearts. They just, this is who they were. They accepted it. Whereas a Christian is fighting inside. I mean, I know that's wrong. And, and, And so there's that... There's that conviction. Uh, but they were, you know, dead men's bones. It was, they were not alive in their heart. And that is the grand difference. The next time a unbeliever says, well, you Christians are hypocrites, you know, let me define that for you. There's a difference. A hypocrite is purposely presenting a false heart to you. Whereas someone who may be struggling out of weakness is trying to survive. And they're in the fight. And so there's a little bit more to it. Anyway, when he says he looked for justice, but behold, oppression, here in verse 7, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. There's a word play here that cannot be duplicated in English. You know, it's idiomatic. And there's a, a rhyme of uh, almost, almost homonyms in the Hebrew. And so it comes down to this, how he, Isaiah, how he uses the words. He's saying, uh, the things, uh, he says he looked for justice, but behold oppression. So he's saying, I didn't get right, I got riot. I didn't get decency, I got despair. That's the best we could do. But it's kind of, if you were reading in the Hebrew, um, I'm told by those who do read the Hebrew and then write about it in English, that it is actually quite ingenious of Isaiah. Well, we talked about how well-educated he, he, he was. Verse 8, <coughs> excuse me, that's not in verse 8. <coughs> Woe to those who join house to house and field to field, till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. I love this verse. I've memorized it for years. Uh, And in New York City, living there, this verse was like, yes, Lord, get me out of here. House to house and field to field. And uh, I got here, I carried it a little bit too far. So, because I'd see developers, you know, buying farmland and putting up these houses two inches apart from each other, you know. And I was like, look at that greedy guys. You know, they can't even give you a little space in the backyard, just like back in Long Island and New York and other places. 
And then God says, yeah, but I'm calling you to minister to people who will live in these houses. Oh, all right. I just had this this morning when my daughter was sitting in the car and said, what are they building? And she said, it looks like an apartment building. So, man, they're crowding them in again. But I remember what God said. So I blamed her. Anyway, uh, it, and this is the problem here. Now, this is not outlawing row houses or apartments. It certainly isn't giving them a plus either. It, it is a reflection of God saying, ideally, people need some space to live. And when I've, I've got that, I can't throw a rock and hit my neighbor from my front porch. I've tried so many times. I'm working on it. But uh, I have space now. And, you know, if he wants to play his music loud, well, not too loud. He could do things. It's just nicer to have space. But, uh, and that's not a rebuke to those of you who may, you know, just not have that, uh, you know, that privilege. So I just kind of a personal touch to this, but it's not a rebuke to those who may live in a project, uh, for example, a project building. Um, anyway, there are ideals. There are lesser ideals. Uh, in, uh, such is life with all of us in different areas. Ideally, ideally, I wouldn't be wearing this toupee. <laughs> Not if anyone. If someone's, what's a toupee? Anyhow, coming back to this, um, uh, this is the first woe. Woe to those who join house to house. The greedy developers. Now, they happen to be realtors, but that doesn't mean all realtors are this way. Not at all. But these, what made them covet it, a covet and greedy is that uh, they went out of bounds and they created congestion, man-made congestion in Jerusalem because they're stealing the land from the people and the people had to go somewhere once their land was gone. They couldn't live out in the woods. Uh, so they would enter and end up in Jerusalem paying rent. And, and this was an oppression on the people. The, the well-to-do were systematically taking land from others. Now, I don't know that this is the motive, but we know a lot of big ch store chains have put out of business mom-and-pop stores. If, if you want to open, you know, a little breakfast shop, you're going to have to compete with some, some big guys. To, and it's going to be hard to survive unless you have a large population where there's enough to go around. My point is, I don't know that, that somebody said, hey, let's, you know, it's too bad we're putting them out of business and had a calloused heart. I, I don't know that. Uh, but in this case... That is what was going on. They were coming up with ways to grab the land of the people, violating property laws of the Mosaic law. Micah, who, who is a prophet at the same time, he writes about this. And this little verse that I'm quoting is not capturing the whole spirit. Amos slams it. He was writing to the north. He, he's gone. Anyway, uh, Micah says, They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses, and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And so there's the one of the, a witness to what Isaiah is saying, that, yeah, they're stealing the land and they're jamming them in the cities. And, uh, you know, woe to those. This is trouble. Not to the people who are stuck in the houses, but to those who are causing this condition. So uh, I have the list of the seven woes here that he's going to l l go out. But instead of reading them to save time, we'll just cover them as we go. So the first one is woe to those who join house to house and field to field till there's no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In verse 
Now, Isaiah has 22 woes throughout his prophecy. Uh, and here's just seven of them. Anyway, verse 9. In my hearing, Yahweh of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. So what's going on here is, first, you've got to love. Isaiah says, oh, the Lord spoke to me on this very clearly, and it was him. And he's saying that those who have grabbed the land and built these beautiful houses, uh, it's all going to backfire. Uh, God is expressing his outrage. He, they think they're going to steal this land and produce, you know, uh, these crops and sell them for the outrageous gains. Well, they're going to be meager gains. They're not going to be large gains, and thus the language, 10 acres will yield one bath, and the percentages is like 10% is all they're going to get out of this, 90% loss. Habakkuk had a similar prophecy, and in his day, the Jews were coming back from the Babylonian captivity, and he and Zechariah were exhorting the people, saying, listen, you've got to build your house of worship. You started it, and then you abandoned it when the little pressure came. We've got to build this temple. You're living in pretty nice houses right now. But look at the house of the Lord. It's just a slab. And so he writes, You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink and you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to be put in a bag with holes. And so he's saying, yeah, you're not satisfied. You, you have these gains, but they're really not gains, are they? Uh, they're They're... You know, their testimony that you can't find satisfaction without a right relationship to your God. And, and he and Zechariah were successful. Verse 11, here's the second woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink to continue until night till wine inflames them. So self-indulgence, we move from greedy covetedness. There are different types of covetedness, but the first one was greed-based. This is self-indulgence of these uh, drinkers. Uh, and they just were consumed by alcohol. It's a twist, right? You're consuming alcohol until it consumes you. And the vineyard owner came to his vineyard looking for devout disciples. Instead, he gets devoted drunks. They are devoted to this. They rise up early and through the rest of the day. Their whole purpose in life now is to be under the influence of alcohol. It's a very, very tra real tragedy down through the ages. Uh, verse 12, the harp and the strings and the tambourine, the flute, the wine are in their feast, but they do not regard the work of Yahweh nor consider the operation of his hands. And so not only were they just being consumed by the alcohol they were consuming, they were what we would say party animals. They loved the social events. They loved to go where there was the alcohol and the people. Uh, the party days, not the Lord's ways. That's their life. We know people like this. We've met people like this. And if you haven't, you will. Uh, Psalm 10, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. And that's these folks. Overindulgence dulls sensitivity to the spirit. And that's why there's such thing called fasting. And there are different ways. There are facets of fasting. You can, you can just abstain from, you know, maybe you, or you love your morning tea. 
And when they say, well, I'm going to drink it this morning. I'm just going to fast from it and just draw close to the Lord. You don't have to just like starve yourself near death. A lot of people have health conditions. They can't take, take those kind of fasts anyway. Anyway, Amos writes about this also. And this to the northern kingdom. Um, he talks about them who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for themselves musical instruments like David. But that whole section, I have it here, but I'm going to read it. Um, it's tempting, but I'm not. It's kind of weird being tempted with the word of God. I'm tempted to read it, not a bad tempt. Anyway, he talks about, he's saying, you guys are into music and you into the other festivities, but look what you're doing to other people. And look what you've done to Yahweh. And look at the result. The Assyrians came and took them all away. Verse 13. Therefore my people have gone into captivity, and because they have no knowledge, their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. And you say, well, where's the timeline here? Well, it could be all over the place. He could be referring to the northern kingdom. He could be referring to Judah, because the Assyrians were making raids into Judah and taking cities. Uh, or he could be, prof- all of them, and prophetically saying, this is where this is going to end up. Uh, because these people thought there were no consequences. And this lack of knowledge, he says here, because they have no knowledge of God, of course. Hosea called that out. Hosea already ministered in the north. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Ignorance is not a virtue. Um, you, know, you know, ignorance is bliss. So it depends on what you're talking about. Um, but when it comes down to hardball, to real life, ignorance is not a virtue. Uh, the prophet is saying, all of, your, all of this is going to cave in on you. This lifestyle is going to cave in. Proverbs 19.2, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge. Unfortunately, you have the other, this, the pendulum swings the other way. You have people who worship knowledge. Paul talks about those always learning, never coming into the knowledge just amassing information to be little know-it-alls. Who likes a know-it-all? Raise your hand. And, and if you, funny, know-it-alls don't know they're know-it-alls. So they don't know it all. All right, verse 14. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself. And let's pause here. The laughter was towards the back. The front people, you've got to do a little bit more. All right, back to this. Therefore, verse 14. Sheol was enlarged, has enlarged itself. And opened its mouth beyond measure, their glory and their multitude with their pomp. And he who is jubilant shall descend into it. And here we have food for the grave. The meals for hell. Hell will consume them all. That's what the prophet is saying. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth. You see the big hippo opening its mouth. And they're just partying. They're going to hell in first class. They're just having all their fun. You know, you heard a comedian once say, I like to sit in the back of the plane. It's because first class is the first one to hit that mountain. That's the humor. It's ridiculous. I heard another comedian say, I sit in the back of the plane. You never hear about a plane backing into a mountain. I'll just stick with my jokes. See, that's what happens. Anyway, all their pomp, all their godless rejoicing, they're going to descend into hell. And Isaiah, he'll bring this up again in chapter 14. He says, hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. This is spooky language. This is spooky language about souls going into hell. Verse 
14 and Isaiah 14. Um, man, if we could just preach this to the unbeliever. Jesus said it this way. Enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to, uh, to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Verse 15. Now, if I'm talking real fast, it's because we've got 30 verses of this. <laughs> if we had three verses, I would be talking to you like that. People shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. Well, God resists the proud. The arrogant people uh, are really not going to do well with God. Uh, <clears throat> we can only understate what awaits those who side against God. There's really no way to overstate it. Uh, I mean, if you just... It's just really serious stuff. Verse 16. But Yahweh of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. And so there the prophet says, as Abraham did, shall not the God of the universe do right? There we have the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. No one's going to be able to in hell say, I didn't get a fair chance. I got a bum deal. You won't be able to. In those areas we can't answer, well, God can answer that. He didn't entrust us with that. Verse 17. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. Well, here, at first glimpse, it seems like this pastoral scene with the lambs are just... But these are the ruins, the waste places. All of those houses they were building, all the things that they were pri- so precious to them. When we realize that the flocks are roaming among the ruins of devastated property, then we say, oh, this is judgment. Those mansions surrounded with lush vineyards would become ghost towns. And the shepherds will roam there with their flocks. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. you got to love the language. You know, he knows people like this. And he's writing this. He knows people. This is the third woe. And it is dedicated to those who are dedicated to sin in defiance of God. In other words, those who are into hedonism in the face of God. Yeah, yeah, keep your God. I'm going to have fun kind of a thing. And so when he says, uh, and sin as with a cart of rope, it's a word picture. Someone pulling a cart, a little cart, with a rope that is loaded with sin. It's a, it's a, a load of sin in their cart. Always dragging iniquity with them wherever they go. I've got my cart. Uh, and you know people like that, no matter where you take them. You, you, know, you take them out of the city and, and, and into the country, they look to do crime. You take them from the country to the city, they look to do crime. No matter where they go, they bring it with them. Iniquity, that is. Verse 19 that say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. There's two things in that with the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah is saying to me, he's the Holy One of Israel. But he also knows, they're little sarcastic, facetious little words, the Holy One of Israel. And they're cynical, they're apathetic. Peter talks about scoffers will come in the last days, saying, from the beginning, our father. And, well, this is what Isaiah is saying. He knew what they were thinking, and he's publishing it. People mock God as they're going to get away with it. 
Jeremiah said it this way. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of Yahweh? Let it come now. Those cynical challenges, taunting God. Ezekiel, in his time, which is around Jeremiah's time, it became almost a proverb. Son of man, what is this proverb that you people have about the land of Israel, which says the days are prolonged and every vision fails? They're mocking my prophecies. Here they are in captivity and they're mocking my prophecies, saying all the prophecies have failed, you know. And it's, you know, unbelievers do this. That we may see, continuing in verse 19, that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. And so um, uh, there they are taunting the Lord. They did this to Christ on the cross. Matthew 27, 42. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Yeah, but it would be too late. <laughs> if he did, it would be too late. Uh, anyway, uh, taunting God is the dumbest thing a human being can do. Uh, anyway, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good, good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is the fourth woe. Those who subvert moral principles, we are infested with them in the, globally. Globally, you have people trying to uh, reinvent morals and tell you that the evil things, are the, they applaud evil and they look down on people. Oh, you don't lie, you know, you don't drink, you know. It's just, uh, anyway, Jeremiah eleven fifteen. when you do evil, then you rejoice. That's messed up. They're upside down. Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to Yahweh. Nothing has changed since those words were put in print. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. The fifth woe. Arrogantly, people who are arrogantly self-impressed. I, that word arrogant is just such a dominant word in in finding it's coming off the Old Testament pages, that kind of self-exaltation that looks to reduce others or steal from others. Anyway, we closed last Sunday with 2 Corinthians 10, 12. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Professing to be wise, they became uh, fools, says Romans one twenty two, Proverbs 3.7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and depart from evil. Empty of God, full of self. That's that group. Verse The next one, verse 22, Woe to men mighty in drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Verse 23, Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice. From the righteous man. So we have two woes here, the sixth and the seventh. Woe to the men mighty uh, uh, in drinking wine. Uh, they have this, they're, they're powerful at, at being drunks, is, is what, uh, what is being said. And they corrupt justice as an outcome of this little world they live in. Uh, it is sarcastic here. Isaiah is saying, let's pin a medal on them. That's what you do to war heroes. You call them the mighty men. Remember the mighty men of David? Isaiah, I mean, yeah, Isaiah is saying they're mighty and they're valiant when it comes to, to alcohol. 
alcoholic products. So he says again, see, they even have a medal for that. Uh, Amos 6, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ornaments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. And so he is saying, you, you don't care anything about what God cares about. And we find this in corrupt politicians, their aides, their advocates, those with an agenda. Verse 24, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the law of Yahweh of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Well, fire effortlessly devours and overcomes straw and stubble. And he's saying, you can't resist God. He's, he just is, he's going to devour it in judgment. And when he talks about their roots will be rottenness and their blossom ascend, Isaiah must have had own plants. And, and he's just using that picture of, you know, you've, you've killed a plant. This thing should have been beautiful, but you, you, you destroyed it. And he says, because they've rejected the law of the Lord, there's the bedrock of all their vices. All seven of the woes are going back to how uh, they failed in the vineyard, the malfunction of the vineyard, and it is the rejection of God's word. He says, and despise the word of the Holy One, uh, as, as, as though it's not enough to reject God, they hated him too. And so that's where, and despised the word. And uh, there are those that are here today. Hence the next set of verses. Verse 25, Therefore the anger of Yahweh is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them. And the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And he's probably pointing to the northern kingdom and or and or perhaps the raids against the Judean cities that yielded many corpses, stretched out the hand uh, to judge them. Uh, verse 26 is pretty much self-explanatory. Verse 26, He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed swiftly. So the coming Babylonian invasion... Uh, he will lift up the banner of the nations. He will send the signal. That's the, the, the use of the, the banners there, like a flagman on a ship, signal man on a ship. Um, now they just text each other. I don't know. <laughs> In a submarine texting a destroyer. <laughs> I can't get a signal. All right. <laughs> anyway, verse 27 um, He's saying here, God is sovereign, and he's going to deal with this. Verse 27, no one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt on the loins be loosed, nor the strap on their sandals be broken. Verse 28, whose arrows are sharp and their bows bent, their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Flint rock is strong and durable. The parallel of this is Joel chapter 2, verses 2 through 9. And there Joel talks about troops that are coming that are so disciplined 
uh, you're not going to be able to beat them. Uh, anyway, and that's what's being said here, verse 29. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar. They will lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely, to, and no one will deliver. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. He just carried them off to Babylon. Verse 30. In that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And it, if one looks on the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. So what did they gain by resisting God? That's a good question to ask somebody. What are you gaining by keeping Christ out of your life if you can get the, the shot? Uh, no happy ending for the wicked and the defiant is how this concludes. Next Wednesday, if we're not raptured, Isaiah chapter 6, one of the premier chapters of the Bible. And as I always say, if we are raptured, I'll finish the study in heaven. We just will meet by... Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Our Father, uh, every night on a Wednesday we come here and we open up your word, whether I'm in the pulpit or one of my beloved brothers. And it is always just a blessing and an education, helping us to mature and stay, stay moving, uh, keep moving forward and not backwards. We thank you. We ask you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.